My text today, Isaiah uh, chapter 52, uh, verses 13 to 15. If you'd like to read along in your pew Bible, you'll find this on page 613. In fact, I encourage you to do so, to open your Bibles this morning. Uh, I'm, this is sort of a teaching sermon. I'm going to be looking at uh, a number of passages, especially in the Old Testament. And so I encourage you to have your Bibles open, keep your finger on this uh, Isaiah text, but we'll be uh, looking backward uh, to other uh, earlier books of the Bible as well. Hear now the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, deal bountifully with your servants now, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I read something recently in the Atlantic magazine that reminded me of my own intense longing for something beyond myself, something, an experience which I had when when I was very young. A writer for the magazine named Tiana Clark was meditating one day. She saw a waterfowl stretching its wings in the summer sun, and it reminded her of a similar experience for her years before. She writes, I stare at a cormorant with its waterlogged wings spread open, drying off on a rock in the middle of a man-made lake after diving for food. And it makes me think about wonder, and it makes me want to pry and stretch my shy arms open to the subtle summer wind slicing through the park, sliding over my skin like a stream of people blowing candles out over my feathery body. And it makes me think about my church when I was a kid and how I lifted my hands to Jesus, hoping for surrender, but often felt nothing except for the rush of fervent people wanting to be delivered from their aching present pain and how that ache changed the smell in the room to money And how I pinched my face and especially my eyes tighter, tighter, and reached my hands higher. How I, like the cormorant, stood in the middle of the sanctuary so exposed and open and wanted 
and wanted so much to grasp the electric weather rushing through the drama of it all like a shout in the believer's scratchy throat. And then this writer comments, I'm still stumbling through this life and hoping for anyone or something to save me. I'm still thinking about the cormorant who disappeared when I was writing this. I was just looking down and finishing a line, and then I looked back up, and it was gone. You see, I know exactly what this woman is referring to. This desperate seeking something, anything that will help us escape ourselves, our limits, our sense of emptiness, our guilt, our families, our dreadful boredom in our prosperity, a desperate gambit to transcend ourselves and be born again from the inside out. And there's nothing new about this desire. In fact, that effort to transcend, to go beyond the normal limits of creaturely life is exactly what the Canaanite Baal religion sought in its orgiastic shrines on the high places, the the high mountain ridgelines of ancient man-centered religion in Judea where human beings were reaching up, always up beyond ourselves, like the Tower of Babel itself, reaching up to commune with God or the primal powers on our own terms, to find some kind of perfect surrender, perfect release, perfect satisfaction and freedom and power. And from the voodooism of Haiti to the sweat lodges of Southern California, to the psychedelic mind-benders provided by hallucinogenic drugs, to the neo-Marxist and neo-fascist political movements today. So many try to reach up and out of ourselves to find ourselves by losing ourselves or to find the beloved community or to find God or all of the above. But the Comorant, always dives back into the lake and the moment passes and at the end of the day all we're left with is a spiritual hangover and an even deeper sense of depression. But you see, the Bible has an answer for this desperate human search for salvation from the self through the self. And that answer to this self focused salvation is the theology of sprinkling. The theology of sprinkling. My purpose this morning is to teach you about the theology of sprinkling, which is really, in many ways, simply the theology of divine grace. I'm going to do this by showing you how it provides for faith, for hope, and for love. You know, the Apostle Paul said those three things abide. Those three things really last. Faith, hope, 
and love. The visions fade. The mountaintops moments pass. The efforts to achieve an ecstatic escape from our creatureliness always fail us. But faith, hope, and love abide. And I am positing today that a good biblical theology of sprinkling on this baptismal Lord's Day, no, nonetheless, thank you Kaufmans for choosing this day for your baptism, the day I had already planned to talk about the theology of sprinkling. Thank you very much. The Lord knew about that. I am positing today that that can lead uh, to both the basis and the ongoing fuel for growth in faith, hope, and love in God's people. Now, speaking of faith, you know, faith always in the order comes first. It is in some ways the foundational spiritual gift that God gives by his spirit. Faith is founded, you could say, on the theology of covenantal sprinkling. Because you see, sprinkling is not an idea that clergy or a priesthood made up. But sprinkling is ordained by God himself, even from some of the earliest books of the Bible. Would you uh, particularly pay attention with me this morning to Leviticus and Numbers? In Leviticus 4, you don't have to turn to this one yet, but in Leviticus 4, the law of God requires that when someone sins or when the whole people of God fall into a grievous sin, the Levitical priests are to sacrifice a bull and dip their fingers in its blood and sprinkle that blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the tabernacle. And this was to show that Israel's sin was not going to be paid for by their own blood being spilled, but by the blood of another, a substitute appointed for that very purpose. In this case, a sacrificial animal. Once in my presbytery, uh, a man was coming into our presbytery. He's a wonderful preacher. He preached on the... uh, the temple and what the temple would have looked like to the average uh, citizen of Jerusalem. And he said, and I, I think he's right, that it resembled nothing more than a vast outdoor slaughterhouse and butcher shop. The sights, the sounds, and the smells were frankly appalling. So you see, there would be justice, there would be bloodletting, but not upon the people. The answer, the solution to the Hebrews' fundamental problem as human beings was not to be found in them, but came entirely from outside of them to them in grace. They could not find it, but it could find them. He could find them. He did find them in Egypt. Sometimes, The sprinkling he commanded was with water to represent cleansing from leprosy or ritual cleansing for the priests or cleansing of a home after someone died in it and such as that. But most centrally, the Israelites were called to be sprinkled with blood. But it wasn't their blood. 
Unlike so many ancient religions which demanded human sacrifices to appease the angry gods, it wasn't ever their blood. And it wasn't at their command or idea either. The whole sacrificial system of ancient Israel was given by God to point to God and to his gracious, permanent provision for his people. That's what it principally teaches. In fact, that there were seven blood sprinklings tells us something more. It tells us that it was all of God. Seven being the biblical number for wholeness or completion. Seven sprinklings implies that nothing is left for Israel to do. Nothing they can add to what God has provided for their redemption. They don't have to raise their hands and squint their eyes really hard and seek a perfect surrender to Jesus Christ from their imperfect souls. God's grace was sufficient Entirely. In the Old Covenant, personal priestly purity was attained by a similar ceremony with seven sprinklings that you can read about in Numbers chapter 19 and other passages. So you see both church members and church leaders, lay people, pastors, officers, teachers, we might say, all are to have faith in what God has freely given his people, not in themselves, not in their own skill set, not in their piety, not in their religious aptitude. And this was true for God's people as a group, corporately, not just personally. According to Leviticus 7 and other passages, the blood was sprinkled at the very door, the, the, the entryway into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle. See, we need grace to even enter into the religious life. And the whole community must ever be marked by divine grace. You know how in how in a football game uh, as the college team runs outside to the field over the doorway they, they, to the stadium, they, there's usually a, you know, sign to tell them to go, you know, play hard or something. And A lot of the times the guys will touch that sign, right? They're touching that sign because they're committing to that idea before they hit the field. Israel could not even enter into its community, into the the gathering place without the blood being sprinkled to cover them. What we really see in a theology of sprinkling is that God himself answers all of God's demands Upon us, and he does so in a way perfectly suited to our need and our human frailty. Now, I do want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 16, one of the most important chapters in Leviticus, and it deals with the Day of Atonement, the, the holiest of holy days for Israel. You can think of the Day of Atonement as Good Friday in the Old Covenant. And look. So again, Leviticus 16, third book in the Bible. And look to verses 14 and following to see what the high priest, in this case it was Aaron, what he would do at the climax of this annual ceremony. 
And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins." Now, you all know about the mercy seat, right? This was the, the covering to the, to the Ark of the Covenant, guarded by cherubim. It was the very throne of God. It, it, it was the, the active nuclear core of the covenant community. And there the blood must be sprinkled. You see, what the, what the blood means to God determines what it means to us. Its significance to him determines its significance to us. And the Lord is showing Israel through this ancient ceremony at the seat called mercy that he has taken the penalty of all their sins and put it entirely on another ceremonially. That's what it means to him. Mercy. Mercy. And don't think that the word ceremonially means not really. God himself describes it in this text as nothing other than making atonement. Even though strictly speaking, we know animals cannot pay for a man's debt. We know, of course, who paid for those sins ultimately. It was through the the true Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, that the efficacy of all these sacrifices was to be found. So then, in the New Covenant, we should have a high view of the effectiveness of the preaching ministry and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper because the sovereign Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is pleased to work through them even as he, quote, made atonement through the sprinkled blood of bulls. That is why Paul declared to the crowd on the steps of the temple in Acts 16, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism washes away sins, according to the word of God, because Christ, to whom the sacrament points and to whom the sacrament is attached, Christ forgives sins. In that way, baptism washes away sins. And so sprinkling, which we receive passively, simply calls us to have faith in God and his promises to us, to be our God, to give us the grace we need. In fact, God himself ties blood sprinkling to the explicit language of his promising, in other words, to covenant language. Now you can turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 24. That's the second book in the Bible. Exodus 
Exodus chapter 24. And in a moment, we're going to look at verse 3 and following. Now, this whole scene uh, concerns the final consecrating act at the foot of Mount Sinai for the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant of the law. Now, let's look at verse 3 and what follows. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Behold the blood of the covenant. Surely this language, as strange as it is, is not so strange to us in this room. For Jesus broke the bread and shared the cup and said, This covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of the covenant. God has thrown, quote unquote, or sprinkled blood on us as well to seal his promises to us. As Peter said in his opening verses of his first epistle, Peter wrote uh, that he was sending this epistle to those who were elect exiles from Jerusalem and, listen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That means they're Presbyterians. (laughs) It's a joke. In sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. But what of this sprinkling language? Why sprinkling? Why, why this almost casual sounding language of Moses throwing the blood on the people? Well, admit it's kind of contrary to our first intuition. I mean, the Israelites, like you and I, were guilty from head to toe. So why not be immersed in the animal blood? If I'm guilty from head to toe, then like Peter at the Last Supper and the foot washing, I'm tempted to say to the Lord, then Lord, wash me head to toe. But here's the divine wisdom in it. In a way nothing else does, sprinkling points to the sacrifice itself, to the sufficiency of the substitute, but not to the efficacy, the power of the actual drops of blood. The bull's blood, after all, is not magic. The waters of baptism are not magic. Even the blood of Jesus himself, 
is not magical. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, We believe in the literal fact of his shedding his blood, but when we speak of his cross and blood, what uh, we mean is all those sufferings and that death of our Lord Jesus Christ by which he magnified the law of God. We mean what Isaiah meant when he said he shall make his soul an offering for sin. We mean all the griefs which Jesus vicariously endured on our behalf. Points to the whole ministry of Christ. So the references to sprinkling point beyond the drops themselves to the promise of God to be our gracious provider and our provider of grace in and through his beloved Son. God's command to sprinkle is accommodated perfectly then to our need and the frailty of our faith and also our idolatrous tendencies to worship the instrumentality. So our confidence is that we are saved not by the sufficiency of the ceremony, but by the sufficiency of Christ himself in his coming, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. After all, sprinkling is such a minimal act. I mean, you saw me do it a moment ago. It's just, it's just the most minimal thing. Who, who can really assume that the mere act of sprinkling itself is the source of grace, the source of the transformative power? No, all the power is in God. God would have us look through these things to his own heart from where the grace comes. God would stimulate our faith in him by the ritual, but not have us distracted by the ceremony or its elements and thereby miss its entire point. That's also why he uses such modest means as preaching and and water baptism and wine and bread. God forbid that this sanctuary should ever have colored floodlights and smoke machines and such at the front. We don't need it. We have his means. He's promised to use these things. God is like a movie producer who is careful not to fill his movie with so many special effects that we forget the main character and the plot. And get distracted by all the spectacular side effects, which in our case, the main plot is God's own gracious, covenantal, transformative love and election of us to be his own. It's God's own heart for us that we depend on. That's who the Kaufmans are going to be depending on for their son is God's own good heart towards Rowan. So again, sprinkling theology establishes on the basis, uh, establishes the basis of our faith in God and stimulates our faith in Him further and His sufficiently. Secondly, it also gives us hope. So faith and hope. Because sprinkling points to God as the sole source of redemption, uh, not to any technique, not to any ritual per se. Therefore, we don't have to be despairing over the lack that's in our lives and the lack that's in our churches 
our remaining sinfulness as people, the frailties of the church and such as that. I mean, who has not been disappointed in the church? I've been disappointed at the church at large much. And I know I have disappointed the church. I know I've disappointed some of you. But you know, God's not defeated by that. His grace overcomes all that. He sprinkles us with salvation. So we don't have to fret over those things. We don't have to fret over the modesty of our means. These simple means of grace we're always talking about. It's his good pleasure to use modest means. God's the one who chose, Paul says, what is weak and despised in the world to bring to nothing the strong and the powerful and the proud and the slick and the accomplished. A reading from Isaiah 52 this morning confirms that in the greatest example of this, God's servant who will act wisely and be lifted up in exaltation, that messianic servant, Isaiah says, appalls us and astonishes people because he was so marred, Isaiah says, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of men. In other words, Jesus' bloody, pulverized body is forever a shock to the way the world expects divine blessings to be packaged. So if God works supremely through the crucified Christ, how fitting that he should also work through something as humble as mere uh, sprinkling of baptismal water through the ordinary upbringing of Christian children in their Christian homes, through Sunday schools and catechism classes and fellowship dinners and breakfasts and such as that. These modest, humble means are the very things the great God is pleased to use, just as he used his brutalized son for such good. God will sprinkle many nations. He will not steamroll them. He will not overawe them, not in this church age, he won't. He will not compel them. He will not need to, because he will sprinkle many nations. In their bulletin announcement this morning, Ryan and Lydia said that it is their hope that Rowan remembers his baptism. And, and many of our parents have said that, that there's their hope he re, or she remembers their baptism. doesn't mean we expect these little infants to actually remember the day of their baptism, the day they were sprinkled with baptismal water. What it means as members of the church, as they grow up in the church and they see others baptized, they will remember that they too were baptized where God came to them before they could go to him and put his gentle mark of covenant love upon them. And that he kept showing them mercy after mercy, blessing them with his presence and his favor in the life of their family and their church. Through such ordinary means, not through strained efforts to exceed our limits and our creatureliness, 
But in the very act of embracing the simple good things God has given us, we come to experience, Rowan will come to experience what we read of in Hebrews 10. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, the great gift of the new covenant, truly gives us all hope. That's really the promise of the new covenant, folks, that while we sprinkle our covenant children and and all converts to our faith with the water of baptism, it is God himself, by the work of his Spirit, who sprinkles the inward conscience of a man or a woman, I mean, that's what Ezekiel promised the new covenant was going to be. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is a prediction centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God says through Ezekiel to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be faithful to my rules. God was going to give the Spirit. That's the hope we have through sprinkling theology. That the Spirit has been given to church in full measure. And we have peace with God. And we have a clear and clean conscience. A tender heart towards God and His kingdom and His people. A faithful Christian life. And yet, even more than that, I mean, Isaiah says in verse 15 that he, Jesus Christ, will sprinkle many nations. God will conquer the world through the modest means he has chosen. We don't need political power to accomplish it. We don't need to manipulate people to make them believe. We don't need to enforce Christian morality on those who are not believers. We don't need to be impressive, perfect people before we can proclaim a perfect gospel of grace and peace with God. Because we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit who sprinkles clean the consciences of men and women inwardly. He will sprinkle many nations And therefore we can know and we can know that we live our honest, simple lives and as we support ordinary means of grace missionaries around the world that God will use even such as we are to sprinkle the nations and draw every one of his elect people to himself until the knowledge of our God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Faith, hope, and finally, love. Because you see, all the sprinkling that happens in the Old Covenant and all the sprinkling of the Spirit and the drops of Christ's blood in the New Covenant, all that sprinkling and all there ever will be only exists because 
of love. Because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Behind the ceremonies and embedded in the church's historic theology is the love of Christ himself. He himself is the linchpin of true, a true theology of sprinkling, a theology of grace. And we don't need to escape ourselves or transcend ourselves or our creatureliness or our humanity or our limits. We don't have to achieve the seventh heaven or hike up to the high ridgelines of ecstatic spirituality because Christ has sprinkled us with his grace. That's enough. Hallelujah. Hebrews says, by faith we have come to him, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these, as always, is love. It is his love. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do love you. Because you first loved us. And you have sprinkled us with the blood of the covenant. Your own sacrifice, your own love. And so now we draw near to our God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, even the waters of our own baptism into your church. We bless you. We love you. And we will live for you forever by your power, by your cleansing, with your help, And in response to your love, help us to walk in the continual assurance of your complete sufficiency to save us by the help and indwelling of your own spirit. For we ask it all in your name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.